Um, the subject we're going to try to cover this afternoon is the second in the series on uh, Calvinism, the five points of Calvinism, that's unconditional election. T, total depravity, U, unconditional election, L, limited atonement, I, irresistible grace or efficacious grace or irresistible faith or many other names, and then T, perseverance of the saints. And we're going to talk about the second section this afternoon, which is U, unconditional election. What exactly does that mean, unconditional election? We want to look at a definition, and I want to give you some quotes from Calvin as to what he saw unconditional election to mean. Um, first off, we have to remember that, that unconditional election is directly related to, election is directly related to predestination, and they are sometimes called the same thing. Sometimes people use the word predestination for election, or election for predestination. And sometimes a third word is used as well, the word foreordination. So election, predestination, and foreordination can all be used in the same way. Election, mostly, um, is used as a subheading of predestination, in that it is used as um, predestination has to do, in some people's minds, not, not everyone, but in some people's minds it has to do with the predestination of events as well as, uh, as well as choices and actions. It has to do with the predestination of circumstances. Whereas election usually has to do with salvation. Election usually has to do with salvation or some other broad categories of election, which we'll look at later. So election, in the, in the way that it's used, as I understand it by most um, Calvinists, means to be chosen. Election, to be elected, to be chosen. So that when they speak of the elect, they are speaking of those who are chosen. Mostly, it's used with the idea of chosen to a special privilege, such as chosen to salvation, chosen to inherit certain things, certain blessings, certain promises, such as with Abraham, that he was elected, he was chosen to be the uh, heir of certain promises and so forth, or that others are chosen to salvation. Um, with this, along with this come many different ideas and we want to we want to look into some of those i'd like to read for you some quotes from calvin concerning election and in this case it's under the section on election the doctrine of election in his institutes but he uses the word predestination so you can see here how he's he's um, using both terms mixing the terms for the same thing okay predestination we call the eternal decree of god by which he has determined in himself what he would have to become of every individual of mankind. For they are not all created with a similar destiny, but eternal life is foreordained for some and eternal damnation for others. Every man, therefore, being created for one or the other of these ends, we say he is predestinated either to life or to death. That was um, book three, and chapter 21, excuse me, that was book 3, chapter 19, and then Roman numeral 3, <laughs> and then part 20, and paragraph 5, or however you read the thing. I find that there are more sections to the Institutes that I am aware of at times. Okay? And this is the... Uh, this is two sections later, section 7 instead of section 5. 
In conformity to the clear doctrine of Scripture, we assert that by an eternal and immutable counsel, God has once for all determined both whom he would admit to salvation and whom he would condemn to destruction. Okay? Now, to introduce a problem that we want to talk about, I'm, I'd like to quote the very first section that he has under the doctrine of election, which is section 3 and part 21, section 1. And this is, a, this is the very first thing that he says. If it be evidently the result of the divine will that salvation is freely offered to some and others are prevented from attaining it, this immediately gives rise to important and difficult questions which are incapable of any other explication than by the establishment of pious minds in what ought to be received concerning election and predestination, a question in the opinion of many full of perplexity. Okay? Then, excuse me. Right. I'd like to give two more, two more quotes concerning the definition of, uh, of election. This is in the same section as I just quoted from. Of the common mass of mankind, some should be predestinated to salvation. This is the end of a sentence. Some should be predestinated to salvation and others to destruction. He doesn't say some should in the sense that he means that he thinks some should. But it's the end of a sentence. Of the common mass of mankind, some should be predestinated to salvation and others to destruction. And then another quote. He adopts not all promiscuously to the hope of salvation, but gives to some what he refuses to others. Okay? So you get the idea? Is that God chooses to give salvation to some, and he chooses not to give it to others. It's what is commonly called election. They are chosen to a certain destiny. Okay? And it's also called predestination. Now, his first phrase here, if it be evidently the result of the divine will. If it be evidently the result of the divine will. I'd like to talk about a problem that we face. It's a basic difference. I don't want to talk about just the idea of unconditional election, but talk about some ideas that lie behind it as well. There's the problem of the law of God. Now, we would seem to see from the scripture three basic sources for the law of God. Three basic sources for the law of God. It would seem to be, one, that it could come from something other than God himself. In other words, comes from something other than God and is imposed upon God by some, somebody other than God. That's a, I guess you'd say that's by reason rather than by scripture. Okay. That I would think every theologian re, uh, rejects. Because the scripture seems to, seems to say that there are, in eternity, there was God. And there was no one else there, or no thing, nothing else there, to impose any kind of standards upon God. Okay? So, you have the idea of something other than God. You want to put that down as number one? Other than God. I don't believe there are any theologians that accept that, Christian theologians. Okay? Then, the second thing is, it could be from God's nature, and I'll define this. By God's nature, 
I mean God's being or God's metaphysics. God's being or God's metaphysics. So I mean by God's nature. And the third choice would be from God's character. That is, what he chooses to do rather than what he intrinsically is. What he chooses to do or his will. That would mean then it would be established upon his virtue or his moral excellence that he has chosen to be good and then it's established upon that. Or uh, on his chosen qualities or what are commonly called his moral attributes or moral characteristics. Or more, more commonly, it's just said, his will. So, in the case of God's nature, it would be based on his being. In the case of God's character, it would be based upon his will. Now, in the discussion today and showing both sides, um, the Calvinist position is usually, now of course it varies, we have to always take into account the fact that different people hold different things, but is usually the idea that God's law is based upon his will. In other words, God chooses what is going to be right and wrong, and he expresses that to mankind. Um, it's interesting, Calvin said that uh, it's not, we're not so much concerned with who God or what God is like as we are with his relationship to us. We're not so concerned with what God is like as we are with his relationship to us. And that was specifically concerning his law. In other words, we don't, it's, not, it's not particularly a concern of ours what his character is, what, is, what is, uh, his actual metaphysical nature is, in that sense, character, but what he has expressed to us as to what is right and wrong. So then it, God chooses, this is going to be right, this is going to be wrong, and he expresses that to mankind. Okay? And it's not based upon any, there's no standard by which God has to choose that. It was chosen because he wanted to choose it that way. Chosen according to his own intelligence, but not according to any any uh, already existing standard. Whereas from view number two, the idea is that God's nature, God's being, the fact that he has, has intelligence, that he has uh, emotions, that he has a will, he understands the value of his own being. And the value of his own being imposes upon him obligation because he has intelligence. He sees, he perceives with his intelligence and by his emotions, that his own being has value and deserves good being, good well-being rather than ill-being. I'm always getting my tongue tied around me. Deserves well-being rather than ill-being. So that as long as God has been, there has also existed a standard of right and wrong. And that, that has imposed itself from God's own being upon himself. It's not from something other than God. It's not something that existed apart from God. But God's being, his metaphysical being, imposed a standard of right and wrong upon himself. And he perceived that with his intelligence and has been living in accordance with that. Thus the Bible says he is good. understand he is good so then that, we're not taking any questions during the during the time okay um, then 
the difference would be in the way that these work out if God's being impresses upon his own intelligence and his own being impresses upon him that he has certain moral obligations that he has certain moral obligations then he has a standard by which he has to live so that when we say God is good then that means that God had a standard that he had to keep and that he kept it but here when you say God is good the only thing that you can say is that insofar as I perceive God, he seems to live consistently with the standard that he has expressed to me. But as far as eternally and absolutely is concerned, we can only take God's word for it that he is good because we ha he has no standard by which he lives. Do you understand? He has expressed a standard by which we are to live, but he has no standard by which he is to live. Is the difference? Here, the idea comes from God's being itself. And so there has always been the idea of right and wrong. There has always been morality. But here, in number three, God expresses to man what he wants man to understand as right and wrong, but God has no standard of right and wrong by which he lives. God, God has uh, constructed that for the good of man. There's a difference between those two. And that has a, a great deal of bearing when we talk about election. Because if God has some standard by which he has to live, and there is ultimately an intrinsic standard that doesn't have to do with, with what God chooses, but has to do with what is e essentially there in reality, then God has a certain standard by which he has to live, and we can ask questions of God, like Abraham did. We can ask, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Abraham perceived the idea of intrinsic right and said, you'd better do right, God. See? And God did not slap him down for that. God responded to him. Whereas you cannot ask questions in, the, in case of number three, no matter what God says, he has done you cannot ask God the question as to whether or not he has done right because what he chooses to do is right by the virtue of the definition of what he chooses to do you understand there's no way of judging whether what God does is right or not if he told us tomorrow that stealing was right we would have to say yes stealing is right because there is no intrinsic right and wrong God constructs right and wrong he chooses what right and wrong will be Okay, so in one, it is eternal, an eternal self-evident principle, and in the other case, that's number two, it's an eternal self-evident principle, and in number three, it is arbitrarily chosen what shall be right and what shall be wrong. And that's essential to our understanding of the idea of election, because people may say, well, what is this? God chooses one person to be saved, and he passes by another person, or he chooses another person to be lost views there and we'll talk about them but you know what is this well you can't question God what he chooses to do is right you think from this view you can't question God what he chooses to do is right okay and what he has expressed to us is right whether we understand it or not whether it seems to make any sense or not okay then there are some differing ideas about election and we've looked at this a little bit before the ideas of infra don't don't now infralapsarianism 
and supralapsarianism. Shall I write them down? Is that right? Intralapsarianism and supralapsarianism. Okay? Replace it with supra. The idea of, of supralapsarianism, it has to do with God's choice in relationship to his knowledge of the course of history. God's choice for people to be saved, in other words, for him to choose some out for salvation, to elect some to salvation, in relationship to his knowledge of the flow of history. So that in supralapsarianism, which is not held by a lot of people because it's commonly called hyper-Calvinism, even by the Calvinists, um, in, in supralapsarianism, it's that God chose before there was, when he was constructing the whole flow of history, predestining the whole flow of history, he predestined these will be saved, these will be lost. In infralapsarianism, God predestined the idea, the whole flow of history, and then in seeing that Adam was going to sin and that all people after that would fall into depravity, he said, since they are all lost in my mercy, I will save some out of there. Okay? So there's a difference. If one is considered, now that's pretty hard to judge as to in eternity, and in considering the course of the flow of history, exactly when God said he was going to choose. Okay? And that's why it's many times called secret decree or secret counsel of God. I have some questions about that, but... Yeah, I'll bring those up later. So, you get the difference between supra-lapsarianism, says that God said these will be saved, these will be lost, as a course of predetermining history. Whereas in intralapsarianism, he said, I see that mankind will fall into depravity, and if I don't do something, they'll all be lost. And so then he chose to save some out of that. Now, that's very akin to the idea that is commonly called positive-positive and positive-negative. An election. Okay? This is just to help you understand a little better. The idea of positive positive, this, this is the term they use, not, not a term I use. Positive positive means that God predetermined that some would be saved and predetermined that some would be lost, and in history, He moves to save some and He moves to damn others. That He is actively involved in damning people, present tense. That's positive, positive. That's not held by a very wide variety of Calvinists. It's commonly called hyper-Calvinism and it's rejected by a lot of Calvinists. Okay? The other is more widely held, which is positive, negative. And it directly relates to total depravity. And that is that God predetermined that looking down through history and seeing that people were going to be depraved, he predetermined that some would be saved and he is actively involved in saving people in history and the others he simply passes by. He simply leaves them. It's not a matter of he is actively involved in damning them, like making them be disobedient, but that he simply passes them by and leaves them to their own depravity. And because of their depravity, they do sin, they are rebellious, they are disobedient, and they are lost. You get the difference between positive positive and positive negative? It's a little different emphasis. In one, God is actively involved in saving and in damning. And in positive-negative, that, that was positive-positive, 
and in positive-negative, he is involved in actively saving and he simply passes by the others, or it is called, this passing by is called reprobation. And there are, of course, different views of reprobation, some active and some passive. Um, I was listening to a guy on a tape, and he said that, he said he didn't really see how you could separate the two. That if you say God simply passes by some people, how could you say that God was not involved in allowing them to be damned? It would seem to present itself to our minds in accordance with natural justice that if God were going to be truly merciful, that he would be merciful to all. And yet that's not held by Calvinists. The idea is just because God is going to be merciful does not mean he has to be merciful to all. They say that's confusing justice and mercy. If he's going to be just, he must be just with all. If he's going to be merciful, he can be merciful to some and not to others. And yet we, in accordance with natural justice, would think that if God uh, saw that men would not be saved unless he saved them, and he really wanted people to be saved, that he would save all men, that he would move on all men, but not so according to the ideas of Calvinism. I'd like to read you some, uh, um, some more quotes from different people. This is from Augustine. I don't have any documentation on this. From Augustine. Listen very carefully and uh, try to see whether it's positive, positive, or positive, negative. And I think you'll find that in many cases it's very difficult to tell which way it goes. Okay, from Augustine. Predestination is the cause of salvation. All saving ordinances are means of realizing it and therefore really serve and benefit only the predestinated. Only the elect, only to the elect comes the effectual, peculiar calling of the elect. All, therefore, rests in the hands of God, depends upon his choice. Okay? Therefore, whoever has, in the most provident ordering of God, been foreknown, predestinated, called, justified, are now the sons of God and can by no means perish. The unpredestinated or foreknown, on the other hand, under all circumstances fall into ruin as part of the massa perditionis, Latin for the mass of the, of, the, of the doom. Even if they appear to be real Christians, called, justified, regenerated through baptism, renewed, they will not be saved because they are not elected. No blame attaches to God. They are alone to blame as they simply remain given over to their just fate. He who falls, falls by his own will. And he who stands, stands by the will of God. In such, God reveals his justice as in the elect, his mercy. No one is saved unless God wills it. Okay? I'd like to make a comment in between here, in between quotes, that the idea is not that God comes to the person and influences them to become a Christian. That's not the idea. The idea is God comes to the person and makes them become a Christian. In other words, he changes their heart. And the response that the person has to that is that they repent and believe. They will repent and they will believe. 
and yet it is said by Calvinists that God does not do that for the person. God does not repent for the person. God does not believe for the person. The person has to do that themselves. But regeneration, the giving of new life, or the quickening of the Holy Spirit, comes before repentance and belief. That God comes to the person, to the, to the one who is elected, who is chosen to be saved, and he gives that person new life and changes their heart. And then as a result of that, they repent and believe. Okay? You understand the order there of, of uh, regeneration. Whereas we would see it as the person repents and believes meeting conditions. Not as a form of work, but meeting conditions for salvation because we can't work for our salvation. And then after that, we're regenerated as a response to that from God. Okay. Um, I'd like to read another one by a well-known modern author, Arthur W. Pink. He's a bit extreme. He's not really accepted as a moderate by the Calvinists. He's accepted as, as a bit extreme. So uh, you'll know that from the way he states some things here. Okay, this is from The Sovereignty of God, the book The Sovereignty of God by Arthur W. Pink. God does not love everybody. If he did, he would love the devil. It is God himself who maketh the difference between the elect and the non-elect. Faith is God's gift, and apart from this gift, none would believe. The cause of his choice, then, lies within himself and not in the object of his choice. He chose the ones he did simply because he chose to choose them. The new birth is solely the work of the, of the Spirit, of God the Spirit, and man has no part in it. This from the very nature of the case. Birth altogether excludes the idea of any effort or work on the part of the one who is born. Personally, we have no more to do with our spiritual birth than we had with our natural birth. That was from page 88. This is from page 101. Again, faith is God's gift, and the purpose to give it only to some involves the purpose not to give it to others. Without faith, there is no salvation. He that believeth not shall be damned. Hence, if there were some of Adam's descendants to whom he purposed not to give faith, it must be because he ordained that they should be damned. He, God, this is page 118, he, God, fits the non-elect unto destruction by his foreordinating decrees. Should it be asked why God does this, the answer must be to promote his own glory, that is, the glory of his justice, power, and wrath. Okay? Last quote has to be a sense. We won't get into that now. So then we see that the idea is that God chooses that some will be saved and that others will be lost, and that he moves upon those people, and that if he did not move upon those people because of their depravity received from Adam, as our, as our quote, federal head, we talked about that before, that we would not be saved unless God moves on us. Okay, the whole system fits together. I'd like to give you some scriptures that are commonly quoted in support of the idea of the doctrine of election. And this is a very, very brief, I've only got six references here, and there are many, many scriptures that are quoted in, in support of this. I want to quote just a few of the more popular ones. Okay, John chapter 15 and verse 16. 
John 15 and verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you could go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. John chapter 13 and verse 18. John 13, verse 18. I do not speak of all of you. I know the ones I have chosen. But it is that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. I know the ones I have chosen. Okay? John chapter 6, verses 65 and 70. And he was saying, For this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. No one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. Verse 70, Jesus answered them, Did I myself not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Okay. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. First Peter, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. 1 Peter, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit that you may obey Jesus, obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. You who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Okay? And then Romans chapter 9. We'll read a long passage here. Romans chapter 9, verses 6 through 24. I'm going to zip through this. I can find it. Romans chapter 9, verses 6 through 24. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Neither are they all children, because they are Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise who are regarded as descendants. For this is a word of promise. At this time I will come, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but there was Rebekah also, when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac, for though the twins were not yet born, and had not done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose according to his choice might stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, it was said to her, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. Here, giving the idea, um, according to what the, as the Calvinists quote it, giving the idea that God loved, and loved Jacob and hated Esau, 
before they were born, while they were still in the womb, before they'd done good or bad. Okay? What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I raised you up, to demonstrate my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. Giving, seem, seeming to give the idea that God is arbitrary in giving mercy and hardening people's hearts. He does it to whomever he will, ever he desires. Verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath, of vessels of wrath, excuse me, vessels of wrath, yes, patience, with much patience, vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. Now the idea that they would give here is that the vessels were prepared ahead of time for destruction. And he did so in order that he might make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. Even us, whom he also called, not from among Jews only, but also from among the Gentiles. Okay? So, those are the, the scriptures that they give, some of them, very few out of the amount that they give, concerning election. They give a lot from the Old Testament as well. My resources in this case were limited, so I had to go a lot on what I already understood. I'd like to take the other side now, take a look at the opposite side, and that is coming from a moral government viewpoint where we would stand on the idea of election in the Bible. First, we need to look at what we talked about before, God and law. Starting from a moral government viewpoint, we start with law as being a self-evident principle. A self-evident principle. It's not something that God has constructed. It is not simply for the sake of man, but something that is self-evident to all moral beings. And that is that the well-being of God and the universe should be chosen before the ill-being of God and the universe. Or, in other words, that God and the universe have intrinsic value and that they, their, their well-being should be chosen simply for its own sake. That that can be an end in itself and that our mind perceives that as our own obligation. The basic thing to understand is that it's not that God has said this is right and this is wrong, but that there is intrinsic right and wrong. That right and wrong is a self-evident principle that has existed as long as God has existed. And that it comes from the metaphysical being of God, as God perceives with his intellect, his metaphysical being, he perceives that he is obligated to choose certain things. Thus, when he chooses to do what is right rather than what is wrong, we can strictly and very um, honestly say, God is good. But that the law of God is not based on God's goodness. The law of God 
is not based on God's goodness. Or we do not choose to love God because he is good. Or because of what he chooses. Understand? We do not choose to love God because he is good. If we were to choose to love God because he is good, because of his moral excellence, because of what he does with law, then how are we to fulfill the command to love our enemies? Evidently, there is something intrinsically valuable about our enemy that whether he chooses to live in accordance with what is right or not, we are still to choose for his good. And so then, our obligation to choose the highest good of someone else is not based on whether they are good or not, because God commands us to love our enemies. So then, it's not based on whether or not God is good that we love him, but it's a self-evident principle that, that shows us our own obligation that right and wrong have always existed as long as God has been. But if there were no God, if there were absolutely nothing, neither would right and wrong exist. If there were absolutely nothing, right and wrong would exist either. Principles don't, would, the principles would not exist on their own. Okay? But they exist because of God's being and because of his perception of his own being. And then because he's created us as moral beings, we perceive the same obligation. Finite scale, but we perceive the same obligation. Okay? So then, we start with a God that's in duration, and he created man, he created man, and the destiny of man was not fully known. The destiny of man was not fully known. God had purposes in mind for man, and that man was going to fall into sin was not God's desire, his intention, or in his knowledge. The possibility that he could fall into sin, yes. That he actually would fall into sin, no. Because that came into existence as man chose. We discussed that last time, if you remember. A little more detail. So then, there was an intention that God had when he created man, so we can read in the book of Romans, that he wanted to bring many sons to himself. That, that Jesus would be the firstborn among many brethren. In this case, it wouldn't have been Jesus. It would have been the Word, because Jesus would have never been... Uh, well, we can't say he never would have been, but it would seem as if Jesus would not have needed to be incarnate if man had not sinned. Okay? So then, the intention of God was that there would be many sons, or that people would be conformed to the image of God, that Adam would become like God in his actions and his responses, that he would begin to do the same kind of things that God did, to respond in the same kind of way that God did. So that when the Bible says that God's purpose for us is that we be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, it is the same purpose that God originally had for man. Only now it's, it's being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ instead of being conformed to the image of the Godhead because we need, because of our, our fallen state, we need some kind of an image to which to be directed, okay? And Jesus has been manifested to be that image. So then, the idea of foreknowledge, in this case, takes on a group idea instead of an individual idea. Are you thinking? The idea of foreknowledge here, then, is foreknowledge to a whole group of people rather than foreknowledge to individuals. In other words, it's not that Mike Siah is going to actually do this, but that God had a purpose in mind concerning a whole group of people that would love him, that would live in accordance with what they knew is right, 
that would worship and serve him, that would live to his glory. Then, the idea of election then, we take, I should say, I take, and there are some of us here that take, the idea, according to its strict definition, which means to be elected to an office, chosen to a position. You can see that the basic idea in Calvinism is that man is chosen to some special privilege, such as salvation. The idea of election there is choosing to a privilege, whereas the actual meaning of the word means to be placed into an office. And we don't have any choice over that. If God calls me to an office, I can refuse to fulfill my responsibility and remain completely rebellious, but I can't stop the fact that God has called me to an office. God calls me to an office, I'm called. And I can't stop that if God has that in his purpose to do that. But whether or not I fulfill my responsibilities is another thing. Because okay? it says that concerning the Pharisees, the Pharisees rejected the purpose of God for themselves. They rejected the purpose of God for themselves. Um, could you write that down and I'll give you the documentation later? I can look it up. I'll give the reference to that later in the question and answer. Um, okay, it's, the definition then is to be chosen and, be, and to be placed into an office. Look at the places in the Bible that talk about election or choosing. Election or choosing. And they fall basically into five categories. Fall basically into five categories. That is, number one, Christ was chosen. He is spoken of as being elect. Chosen. I'll read you an interesting quote on that in a moment. Number two, that the believers in Christ, or the church in Christ, is spoken of as the elect, or elect, chosen. Believers in Christ. Number three, the nation of Israel. The whole nation of Israel is spoken of as chosen. Number four, Believers within the nation of Israel are spoken of as chosen or elect. Like Paul said, they are not all Israel, which are from Israel, but there remains an election of grace. He's talking about within the nation of Israel, there is another group called the elect or believers within Israel. Number five, the twelve disciples are spoken of as chosen or elect. And it's interesting that many of the scriptures that I read to you concerning election at the end of the other section, that many of those scriptures have to do with the, have to do with the apostles being chosen to a specific thing rather than being chosen to salvation, although the scriptures are very many, very many times used that way by Calvinists. I'd like to read you a quote concerning Christ was chosen. It's hard for us, when we've used the word elect in one way for so long, to begin to see what the real definition of elect can mean. So I'd like to read you an interesting quote concerning the way the word elect is used with Jesus. The word elect is used with Jesus. Okay. Reading to you from um, 
God's Strategy in Human History, page 102. But although the Messiah has been chosen for a task, we should not think that the idea of selection is strong here. I'll read that again. Please follow. But although the Messiah has been chosen for a task, we should not think that the idea of selection is strong here. It would be strange, if not blasphemous, were we to think that God as think of God as passing by other possible candidates for the Messiahship. In other words, when it talks about Jesus as being chosen or being the elect, that doesn't mean that God looks amongst all the candidates that were possible for the Messiahship and said, well, you'll do. You see? He says it borders on being blasphemous to think that there was anybody else that was worthy of such. Okay? So the idea of, of elect or chosen with Jesus does not mean that he was picked out from a group. And we have to be careful that we don't use... Uh, an unbiblical idea of chosen or elect. Jesus was placed into an office. He wasn't picked out from amongst a, a, a group of people that were suitable for Messiahship. Okay? I'd like to read you some more. We may understand this better if we realize the very close connection between the words eklektos, chosen, and agapetos, beloved, in reference to Christ. This is shown most clearly in the way in which the Gospel writers translate into Greek the words which God spoke presumably in the Aramaic language, during the transfiguration of Christ. Matthew renders it, This is my beloved, Agapetos, son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear you him. Mark is similar. This is my beloved, Agapetos, son. Hear you him. Luke, however, renders the same words using the Greek word for chosen. This is my son, my chosen. Hear you him. Thus, we thus see that when the word elect or chosen is applied to Christ, its primary meaning is not one of selection, but one of belovedness. The point above also may be illustrated from Matthew's rendering of Isaiah 42.1. The Hebrew of Isaiah reads, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. The Septuagint quite naturally renders the word chosen by the Greek ekestos. But Matthew does not follow the, the Septuagint in this instance. You know what the Septuagint is? The Greek translation of the Old Testament. Um, But Matthew does not follow the Septuagint in this instance. Instead, he renders the Hebrew using the Greek word, Agapetos, beloved, thus, Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved, Agapetos, in whom my soul is well pleased. Matthew, therefore, uses the word beloved as a substitute for the word chosen in this context. This type of interpretation of the word chosen is not unlike that of the Septuagint itself when it speaks of choice silver, excuse me, (coughs) or describes a beautiful girl as choice as the sun. The emphasis is not on selection, but on the the value set on the object described. There are only three other verses in the New Testament which refer directly to Christ's chosenness. In two of them, the connection with belovedness is marked. Thus, in 1 Peter 2, 4, we find that he is a living stone with God elect precious. And in 1 Peter 2, 6, that he is a chief cornerstone elect precious. The double linking of the election of Christ to his preciousness to God shows, shows us well the connotations of the term. Okay? Then when it speaks of the believers in Christ, we need to be very careful what we do with the phrase in Christ. 
Then there's Israel, the believers in Israel, the twelve disciples. Now, most of the scriptures that um, the, the Calvinists use in talking about, and especially Augustine, he uses in the space of a few paragraphs, he uses seven times the verse, you have not chosen me, but I have chosen you, in reference to individual, personal salvation. Whereas in the context that it comes from, comes from, from John 15, it's referring to the apostles being chosen to a specific purpose, and that is to go and to bring forth fruit. And we have to be really careful in cases like that. Also in John 6 and verse 70, very, yeah, right, very interesting, John chapter 6, because, I won't get into that. <laughs> I'm going to say this next. Okay? I want to read you another quote from God's strategy in human history. Maybe that will come up in our uh, discussion. Maybe it will come up in this quote. Concerning the election of the twelve disciples, it should be noted that A, Jesus chose twelve from his followers. This is from God's strategy in human history, starting with page 93. Jesus chose twelve from all of his followers. B, you should note that Jesus chose Judas too. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and one of you is a devil? Now he spake of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he it was that should betray him, being one of the twelve. John 6, verses 70 and 71. It came up. Okay? See? I'm not following their ABC. See? The apostolic task was to witness to Jesus' life and resurrection. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. And you also bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. Of the men, therefore, which have accompanied with us all the time, excuse me, that was John 15, 16, and 27. Another quote. Of the men, therefore, which have accompanied with us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John, under the day that he was received up from us, these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. That's Acts chapter 1, verses 21 and 22. Okay? D, it should be noted that Judas fell from God's chosen office for him. He was elected to an office, and he fell from that office. For he, Judas, was numbered among us, and received his portion in this ministry. His office let another take. Of the men, therefore, which accompanied with us, of these must one become a witness of his resurrection. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, know the hearts of all men, which know the hearts of all men. Show of these two the one whom you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas fell away that he might go to his own place. Judas fell away from his apostleship. That's Acts chapter 1, verses 17 to 25. Portions of those. Judas was chosen to the same apostleship and ministry that the others were chosen to. Have not I chosen you, the twelve, and one of you the devil? And so then the choosing, the verses that are used in many cases in reference to personal individual salvation are actually in reference to the uh, election of the apostles to a certain office and need to be treated very carefully. Um, concerning the phrase in him in the book of Ephesians, it's interesting to note that the, that the phrase in him is... Um, in some cases, belabored by the uh, Calvinists, 
in that they make a great stress on the fact that it is in him that we are chosen, and yet the phrase in him is used in a very specific way in the scripture. I'll give you one instance. And the, the, the phrase, you know what I mean by the phrase in him, in him, in Christ, in the beloved, that those words like they're used in uh, Ephesians, especially chapter 1. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things have passed away, behold, all things have become new. Or, let all things, let old things pass away, and let all things become new. You can't say either way. Um, but what it says, if any man be in Christ, so then we are elect to an office, or to be beloved, because we are in him who is elect, or chosen, or beloved. And as long as we are in Christ, we are elected to an office. And that's why Paul can make the statements that he does about us, that we are an heir of the Father, joint heirs with the Son. We are the heir of all things, because Jesus is the heir of all things. And so as we are in the Beloved, as we are in him, then we are also elected to the same office to which he is elected, which is quite a calling. Now, we can opt out of that office. We can fail to fulfill our responsibilities. Okay? But we can, once we've been called, we've been called. Okay, another interesting illustration, and then I want to deal with Romans chapter 9 for a few moments. Another interesting illustration is Naomi, that she is listed as a part of the genealogy of Jesus. She is listed as a part of the nation of Israel. Is that not interesting? How did she get in to the nation of Israel? She chose. That's not, no, excuse me, that's not Naomi, that's Ruth. Excuse me. I don't know why I wrote Naomi down in my paper. Anyway, I got the right example. I just, uh, wrong person. Okay? Ruth is a part of the genealogy of Jesus. And she chose, by following Naomi, where Naomi comes in, she chose, by following Naomi, saying, my God, or your God will be my God, your people will be my people, she elected herself into the nation of Israel. And thus became one of the ancestors of Jesus. She became a part of the, of the messianic line by choosing to follow Naomi. Okay? Then, let's deal a little bit with Romans chapter 9 before we open up to discussion. Romans chapter 9. Interesting chapter. I'm going to hit, hit some highlights in here because some things are going to take more than two minutes, which is what I have left. Some things will take more than two minutes, so I'm going to uh, just hit some highlights in here. Point some things out to you. It's very commonly said that the scriptures, it was said to her, the older will serve the younger, which is in the book of Genesis, and this is what is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated, have reference to the election of people to salvation. The older will serve the younger. That does not have anything to do with salvation to start with. It has to do with service. The older will serve the younger. That doesn't have to do with salvation. You can very clearly see that. That is from the book of Genesis. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And many people read this as if the, the second phrase were also in the book of Genesis, but it is not. The second phrase is taken from the book of Malachi, and it has to do with nations. It's talking about Jacob as a nation. It's talking about Esau as a nation. And many people misread that because they don't take the references back to the Old Testament to find out where they are. 
Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated, is not quoted in the book of Genesis concerning Jacob and Esau before they were born. It is stated after both nations have come into existence and have proved themselves before God, God says, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And it should be noted that the, um, the quote is not from the book of Genesis. It's not found there. It's found in the book of Malachi. I think it should also be, first of all, noted that the whole, the whole uh, emphasis is the Jew-Gentile controversy. That's what Paul's trying to take care of in Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11. Is that why do the Gentiles get to come in and be partaker of all of these promises through faith when the Jews worked and worked and worked and worked and worked and couldn't get it? Okay. And that's the whole controversy that, that Paul is dealing with here. And we need to always keep what we're reading in that context. You see that if you look at the end of Romans chapter 9, starting with verse 25, and going through the end of the chapter, that the context is the Jew-Gentile controversy. Why do the Jews, the Gentiles, get to come in by faith and partake of the blessings and the promises of the Jews that were promised to Abraham? Why do they get to have that through faith and the, and the Jews who worked and worked and worked to try to establish righteousness don't get it? Of course, Paul is fighting here for the idea of justification by faith, which is one of his main themes in the book. Let's go on to the next, next uh, section, 14 through 18. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It's another interesting thing is that people do not take this back to the statement in the Old Testament, which is in Exodus chapter 33, to where this verse comes from. It's after a long dialogue between Moses and God, a very long dialogue, in which Moses tries to get God to do something which he in his justice cannot do. He tries to get God to do something which he in his justice cannot do. And God says, when they come into the land, I will visit their sins upon them. I cannot lay down penalty for sin because you pray for it. God had said, I will destroy this nation and make a great and mighty nation out of you. And Moses could talk him out of that. Moses could talk him out of that, but as far as being, being punished for the sins that they had committed in rebelling against God and going into idolatry, God said, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. And Paul says, there's no injustice with God is there, may it never be, because he said to Moses. So you can never use the verse, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion, to say that God is arbitrary. Because the very argument that God is, that Paul is trying to bring out is that God is just, isn't he? He goes according to law, doesn't he? He wouldn't let get Moses get away with praying people out of the penalty of their sins. Okay. It's not fair to Paul, to the Apostle Paul, to think that he did not know what he was quoting. Or to say, that, to, to presuppose that we know the Old Testament better than he did. I would not like to battle with the Apostle Paul and his knowledge of the Old Testament. You see? So when he quotes from there, I assume, I must assume, that he knew what he was talking about. And he, the very argument he's making is, God is not unjust, is he? No. He said this to Moses. I can't lay down my standards, Moses. I've got to go according to the law. I can't lay down the penalty of their sin just because you pray, pray about it. Okay? So that it does not depend on the man, uh, on the man who wills, the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. Then he goes into the discussion of Pharaoh, 
a very large discussion, which is one I don't think we can get into right now. Go to the discussion of Pharaoh. The thing I'd like to say is the verses that have to do with Pharaoh here do not in any way have to do with his personal salvation in any fashion. They have to do with God's purpose with the Jewish nation. God raised Pharaoh up to show his might and his power in him that his glory might be known. But that does not mean that God damned Moses, damned Pharaoh so that his, his glory might be known. It simply says that he raised him up and showed his power in him that his glory might be known. It's a purpose in world history. It is just like the elders shall serve the younger. The elders shall serve the younger. is a purpose in world history. It is not a statement of salvation. Sounded like you ripped the face out of it. Receive me. Okay. And then with verse 19, who you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? And then Paul the Apostle does not answer that question, you notice. He says, on the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? In other words, you couldn't even ask that question of God if no one could oppose God. I would like you to think that through, because most people do not see that Paul did not answer the question. He did not answer the question. He simply said, who are you? If, in other words, if nobody can resist God's will, how are you making the resisting of God's will right now by saying, wait a second. Who are you who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not, does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and make his power known and endured with much, and he talks about the, ref, the, vessel, the vessels of wrath, that rightly said, the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction and the vessels of, of mercy prepared for glory. And the interesting thing here is that most people do not trace down the other references in the scripture to vessels of honor and vessels of dishonor, and they do not take the whole context of what the Bible says about vessels and potters. And in Jeremiah chapter 18, you will see that when the pot was marred in the potter's hand, that it was the pot's fault. It was not the potter's fault. So it's not as if the potter can make the pot, in this case, do anything that he wants. People may have a mistaken view when they take the metaphysical picture, the metaphor, of a pot, potter in a pot, and they carry it across to a moral setting. But God explicitly states to Jeremiah what he means by the picture that he's given, and he says, if a nation rebels against me when I promise them good, I'll change my mind and I'll destroy them. Or, if I say that I'm going to destroy a rebellious nation and they change their mind, then, uh, and they repent, then I will change my mind and I will not destroy them, but I will bless them. So it, when he says potter and pot, and the pot was marred in the potter's hand, he's talking about whether or not a nation is rebellious or obedient, as to whether or not a pot is marred or not marred. Also, taking the reference that, that Paul makes to Timothy, um, where is that, Second Timothy or First Timothy? Two. Second Timothy chapter 2. In the wrong way here. Second Timothy chapter two and verse twenty-one says, "Well, let's read verse twenty. Now, in a large house, there are not only gold and silver vessels, but also vessels of wood and of earthenware, some to honor 
and some to dishonor. Therefore, if a man cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. So when it talks about vessels to honor and vessels to dishonor, it says that you can make yourself, by cleansing yourself, a vessel to honor. In both cases with vessels, from the Old Testament with Jeremiah and from the New Testament with Paul, it has to do with you make yourself a vessel to honor or to dishonor. You mar yourself or you do not mar yourself in the potter's hand. And that's a very brief rundown of those um, particular passages, and maybe in the discussion we'll get into more. But I'm going to ask Floyd to come up and help me answer questions. Thank you. 
Because that does have to do with English language. Okay, but Can you explain a little bit more interlateralism versus superlateralism? Uh, particularly how they related to the concept of the whole history. I got the idea that uh, you know, I got the plus minus and plus plus part of it, what that meant, but how is it related to the whole history? I mean what influences about the whole history? Um, maybe a diagram will help. I think this one's See the diagram will help. But if we look at the, the way God was looking at history as this, that, of course, now this is, this would indicate, the diagram would indicate, indicate duration, so if you're not convinced of that, you might not agree with the diagram. But, but as he looks forward and sees the history of the universe, and that man right there is going to fall into sin, and from that time on that he's going to be depraved, then he says, I will, because man is going to do this, I will choose here and here and here and here, or no one, I will make these people be saved, or no one would be saved, because they can't, they won't be able to repent, they won't be able to turn to me or keep my law or anything, okay? Now, that's, that's infralapsarianism. And then superlapsarianism is like this. Before he considers the, um, the flow of history and the way it's going to go, instead of seeing the flow and then saying, because of that I will make this choice, he actually established, I will have man fall here, I will choose man out there, and there, and there, and there. The secret decree of God comes up in that, in that the idea of the secret decree of God is that it would appear from this kind of thing, from superlapsarianism, that God has some desire to have evil in the universe, that it is his will that some people be evil. And the reason would be normally given in order to show his glory. And that's called, commonly called the secret decree of God as to God's wanting evil to be in the, in the world. And we don't understand why, because all the way through the scripture, um, God seems to indicate that he doesn't like sin. referring to is I am I am the Lord I create good and evil and light and darkness and in that particular passage it's referring to the uh, invasion of the land of Israel by the Babylonians and it's a reference to the fact of, of not good and evil in the moral sense but the idea of calamity or peace or punishment <laughs> yeah or punishment and and so the evil that God was talking, the, word, the way God was using the word evil there is actually in some versions translated calamity. And so it was God was bringing the calamity of the northern army invading the land upon them. He was doing that. That was his doing because of the judgment on the people. So it doesn't mean that God was creating evil as far as morally was concerned, but um, he was bringing a judgment upon the people. But no, I don't believe any place else, unless you know some of the scriptures, I don't know of any place else where you'll read uh, the idea of God's creating evil as far as morally. Because he gives very explicit ideas concerning that as far as the enemy and man. Yeah. Um, I don't understand it, but 
the Russian government is doing the interpretation of the word and the interpretation and the application to second definition of the document, etc. Um, where did the idea of election, the meaning of the word election, um, as in terms of salvation, come in? And where do you get what you describe as the literal meaning of election? about 
king as my enemy. In this, in this passage, still talking about my enemies, but in singular form. And then he goes back to talking about plural, and you'll find that the other um, other references are usually in a plural context as well, that are referred to um, Judas. So, what specific passage do you think you're referring to? I think it was the one in John 6, wasn't it? Oh, or. That let another take his office. So that was Peter referring to that in Acts chapter one, yeah. the end of Acts chapter one. Okay, but a careful study of some of those passages could lead one to think that Jesus wasn't altogether uh, knowledgeable of the fact that Judas wouldn't betray him. In fact, there's every indication to believe that up to a certain point, that it wasn't a certain factor in even in Judas's mind, and therefore it wasn't a knowable factor in Christ's mind. Thank you. 